<laughs> when you've been at it a long time and you, you know, you've gotten through the early terrible training about, you know, the five, five opening questions and the five <laughs> ways to close and how you tighten the screws. And, you know, we all learned to sell like that. And, you know, and we did it for a long time. And for a long time, the job of sales management has been just trying to keep the pressure on your people to do that. And the problem with it is that nobody really likes to sell like that. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Scott Roy and Roy Witten, and they are the co-authors of a book titled Decision Intelligence Selling, Transform the Way Your People Sell. Now, in this conversation from the archives of the Sales Enablement Podcast, I join with Scott and Roy in attacking the status quo in sales. I mean, despite all the talk about the revolution that has hit sales in the past 10, 15, 20 years, Scott and Roy believe, as I do, that sales is largely stuck in the past and all the great sales technology in the world hasn't fundamentally changed that. Scott and Roy have this paragraph in their book I want to read. It's, quote, there is credible research that identifies the business activity that creates or destroys client loyalty. It's the way they, the buyer, are treated during the selling process. I mean, their conclusion is if you want to create a business that not only survives but thrives, you have to take a penetrating look at the way your buyer experiences how you sell to them, which, again, I believe 100%. So what I dig into with Scott and Roy is what companies need to do to transform their selling and talk about using it in the the context of the RACE method that they've talked about in their book. We also get into one of my favorite topics, which is the wrong-headed belief many sellers have that selling is about persuasion, persuading people to buy their products. You know, this belief that sales is about persuasion drives sellers to pitch and sell before they, or even their clients, truly understand what's important in terms of the challenges they face and the desired business outcomes they have. So, it's all backward and destructive of value, and it's destructive of the connection and the trust you need to build with your buyer. So we're going to get into all this and much, much more. But before we get to Scott and Roy, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. Appreciate it. All right, let's jump into it. Scott and Roy, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you very, thank you very much. Good to be here with you, Andy. And so tell us where you guys are sheltering in place. I know you're in separate locations. Right. Well, this is Scott, um, and I'm in... Um, I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee, and uh, been been here for about two months now, and uh, separated from my wife and daughter, who are over in London, England, in our other home. So uh, it's been a strange period of time. <laughs> I can imagine, uh, mm. but you're getting familiar with using Zoom, though. Well, you know, it's really funny, uh, Andy. Zoom is the platform that we use all the time, anyway. I mean, I spend six to eight hours a day on Zoom pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Just because we work, we work globally. We work all over the world. And, uh, you know, speaking to our clients or speaking to prospective clients or our, our uh, staff, you know, we're constantly using Zoom. So that's not been a, a big adjustment for us at all. And Roy, how about you? Where are you? I'm in Sacramento, California, and uh, been indoors as well. I think they're starting, I think we're starting our 10th or 11th week here. Uh, <laughs> my wife's here with me. And fortunately, our children and grandchildren are just doors away. We've all wound up on the same street. 
Oh, wow, and nice. So we do get to see our four grandchildren show up, keep their distance, play in the backyard, play in the driveway, and we're able to have some hangout time, uh, which really makes this easier. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've got uh, kids just here in Manhattan, and we get together for socially distanced walks occasionally, but that's about <laughs> it, right? Hmm. So, yeah, life, is, life, life has changed. Um, totally. Indeed. So tell us a little bit about the work you guys do, uh, just to start off, because, yeah, you do some really interesting things, especially in other parts of the world. Yeah, we're, um, we're a sales consultancy. Um, we've been going now, as, I think this is our 12th year. Um, we, we launched right at the, uh, the height of the, of the global financial crisis. So, uh, always <laughs> uh, good timing, yes. Always good timing. Well, actually, it was as a result of that, you know, and Roy and I uh, were uh, looking uh, to join forces. We'd been working uh, uh, together, uh, working for another consulting firm in London, and then uh, this opportunity came together for he and I to work together and, you know, we've known each other for donkey's years. And, uh, and so we, you know, we basically are a sales consultancy. We have our roots in uh, the commercial world in London and, uh, and in Europe. And then for the last 10 years or so, we've, uh, we've actually uh, worked all over the world in um, places like Cambodia and Zambia and South Africa and Brazil and 40 different countries like that, actually bringing our sales consulting, transformative sales consulting uh, practice uh, to organizations that, uh, that are selling very important products to the poor uh, worldwide, things like water filters and latrines and things like this that uh, are serving the poorest of the world. Well, tell us about that. So, how do you how do you how do you get involved in that business, and and who are the organizations that you're you're training how to sell? Sure. Well, I mean that's a that's a uh, thanks for asking. I mean it's completely by accident this all happened. I uh, when I was turning fifty about uh, about fifteen or uh, thirteen years ago, um, I'd uh, you know I'd retired and wasn't sure what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, the second half of my life, you know, and I mm-hmm. was, in, was in London and working. Uh, not working at all, but reading the the Times every day because my wife uh, was working, and uh, I saw this article in the Times that said that they wanted CEOs that wanted to make between two pounds thirty and five pounds ten per day, and I <laughs> it just caught my interest, you know, because I mean a CEO making that kind of money, and it was all about a volunteer program similar right. to the Peace Corps, but for for older folks uh, called Voluntary Service Overseas, and so I it just caught my eye. And I thought, wow, well, you know, why don't, you know, why don't I look into this? And so I did, and I qualified for the program. And then I went to Cambodia uh, to work as a, as a livelihoods um, uh, advisor for the program that was there. And so that's, that's what took me into the developing world. And then from there, I learned that the selling skills and knowledge I'd accumulated over 30 years uh, in the United States primarily, uh, and then in London, actually worked beautifully in Cambodia. And, uh, you know, selling very inexpensive packets of seeds and things like this, you know, to smallholder farmers. It's the same thing as, you know, closing multi-million mm-hmm. deals in London. So, very so that's how it started. And then, it, and then we got hot and, you know, it's taken us all over the, all over the, all over the planet. Yeah. So, I mean, are they typically, are these commercial organizations or are they like NGOs or, or both yeah. or? Sometimes it's NGOs. What, what basically happened about about fifteen to eighteen years ago is that philanthropy and um, you know these 
organizations like USAID that mm-hmm. give millions and millions of billions of dollars to poor countries used to just give this stuff away in the form of relief. And so what they decided about 15 years ago was, hey, you know, instead of just giving this away, why don't we, you know, the proverbial, uh, why don't we teach a person to fish rather than just give them the fish? And so essentially they began forming organizations that would then market these products to the poor. They would develop the products or market products to the poor, things like solar lights that replaced uh, kerosene lamps mm-hmm. that are polluting, et cetera, or water filters, you know, where people die of diarrheal disease. It's a very simple fix if they just get their water filtered. So, um, so these products and services are oftentimes, you know, 20 to 50 or a hundred dollars or maybe $200 that are very affordable and they needed to build a sales organization or sales organizations to deliver this. So we work with NGOs, we work with private sector players. um, We work, you know, with organizations uh, commonly known as social enterprises uh, that are, that have a social good and are also doing business uh, using business principles to actually uh, build their, build their, uh, you know, build their influence and deliver the mission. Hmm. So how it's it's so fascinating when I was reading about this is, is so how how do the concepts translate into something that first of all is you're selling something that's very everyday right you're talking about lighting yeah. you're talking about you know yeah. sanitary facilities and so on um, to people that you know don't have much to spend. Right. Well, basically all of these products, I mean, these companies that are selling these products aren't trying to profit off of the poor. Sure. What they're trying to do is they're trying to be sustainable entities. So therefore they need to have some profit. And then in what they're really trying to do is to create change in people's lives. They're trying to get people who have never used a bathroom, for example, to get them to use a bathroom. So it's not just selling the product, but it's also transforming their behavior. Right, which, is, right. which which requires more than just a, a product pitch. And this is what I noticed when I got out there and I was starting to watch what people were doing is they were just sort of pitching a product at people like a like a door to door salesman, you know, the typified door to door salesman does, you know, sort of, hey, you know, you need to buy this and here's why you need to buy it. Here are the features and benefits, et cetera. Well, when I or, that, or, or most salespeople. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Untrained salespeople. And this is the point is that they were just literally pitching at people and they weren't engaging in any sort of conversation. So, you know, this sort of fast paced pitch really was a mismatch for what they were trying to do, which was getting people to buy into a different behavior. And so we, t- we, we took um, right out of our toolbox of all of the sort of complex selling skills and deeper consultative skills that we do, what we call DQ or, mm-hmm. or intelligence that we were doing in, in central London. And we took it out and we put it into the rice fields of Cambodia. And actually that process, the, the four-step process is exactly the same. It's just delivered in a much shorter period of time, like 20 minutes rather than, rather than 20 months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, but the principles, the principles all, all apply. People are people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you really want people to think deeply about their, about the problem, that's the point. You want them to think deeply about the problem they have. Oftentimes people um, don't even know they have a set of problems. And so therefore you need to engage in conversation uh, that helps draw that out of them so that they begin to realize that the problem they have is bigger than they thought it was. And so therefore it sets up an opportunity for them to, you know, to discuss solutions to that problem. Mm-hmm. 
and sort of last question on that that part is is so how do you guys make money on that? Well, we you know we we make a lot less money on that. Let's put it that okay. way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Than the rest of our business, we scale our our rates so that uh, so that it's affordable uh, for organizations that are in places like uh, you know like the what we call the developing world or uh, the global south is what it's now being called. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we we just charge a fraction of what we normally do in the western western world. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's so unusual because. Yeah, on this show, I talk to all these trainers and thought leaders and consultants, and it's, it's you know, this never comes up. And they're always concerned about, you know, what's happening here in the United States. And mm. and it's, uh, yeah, you never get the sort of consideration about, yeah, what are, what are other people doing? I mean, certainly Europe, yeah. But I mean, in, in, as you said, in the developing world or global south is, is they have the same concerns, I mean, the scale might be different, or the type of product might be different, or could be the same. But mm-hmm. yeah, we're so sort of Western centric and Eurocentric in all that we do. That's very true. It's very hard to see. It's very hard to see. Uh, you know, life in you know in Nigeria. I was just in Nigeria in the beginning of of March, actually, um, just before they closed the country, and uh, to work with you know people that are very very poor farmers, and when you can show them how they can literally triple their income by being a part of this organization we were working with out there uh, it, it's to see the the you know the delight on their faces it's just amazing but at the same time the same process that we do in Nigeria is is exactly the process we do mm-hmm. in South London or New York or you know with our commercial clients because we also have our commercial clients as well yeah. and uh, and so you know it's it's the same process it's the same quality of of a deep look into how people actually are transacting business and driving the sales within their companies, whether it's mission driven or it's, you know, purely commercial driven, commercially driven. Well, I wanted to get in and talk about yeah, your book and decision intelligence or decision intelligence selling. Um, you're adding a, another Q to the lexicon. There's, you know, EQ and <laughs> there's been a sales intelligence SQ. There's, and it's all sorts of RQ relationship quotient. So now we get DQ, which you know could be Dairy Queen as well. My wife's Dairy Queen. <laughs> Those blizzards are very. Every time we pass one, she wants to stop. She's very good about not. But um, but uh, but before I talk about that, I just wanted to. I mean, it was a very smartly written book. You guys, you know, to my mind, get it in in many ways that a lot of people don't. Is but I just want to talk about sales improvement in general. Um, and I just increasingly have this feeling that, yeah, you know, we're just attacking the problem in the wrong way. Mm. And, you know, we spend $20 billion a year in the United States on sales training um, and billions more in sales technology, whether it's CRM or a whole new generation of sales tools that are out there. And yet the data is showing us that we really haven't moved the needle at all in terms of sales performance. Uh, in fact, the reports that are out say that maybe we've gone the opposite direction. And certainly when you look at overall increase in productivity across our economy, um, you know, productivity is up just marginally, right? About mm-hmm. one and a half, one and a half percent a year. Mm-hmm. So, and obviously some of that is, you know, has to correlate to our selling ability. So, um, I was wondering what, <laughs> what should we really change, right? That, that, 
I mean, I always think about this this quote from Deming, Edward Deming, about mm. every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. Yep. <laughs> which seems to be the, the rut we're stuck in in sales, in spite of what has been this, this you know, fairly dramatic changes. It's certainly driven by inside sales, or we've got very specialized sales roles, you know, SDRs, BDRs, AEs, and so on, which you know makes a ton of sense in, in many situations. But it's like, yeah, it's just still not happening. Mm-hmm. And it seems like we put all this $20 billion into a very small return. I, I think you're exactly right, Andy. This is Roy. And um, one of the things that we've really benefited from is uh, um, our immersion into what's called transformative science or transformative learning and change. And when you apply the insights of transformative science to the very things you're mentioning, what you find is that there's there's two fundamental reasons that things aren't changing in, in the world of sales, whether it's in the commercial world that we've sold in or also in the um, what's been called the developing world of social entrepreneurs that Scott has just been talking about. Mm-hmm. And the two things are first – what people actually think selling is. That is what transformative science calls the paradigm. Sure. Uh, which is like, it's like the one question fish never ask each other is where's the water? <laughs> you know, they, they don't know they're in water because that's how they live. There is the paradigm of selling that we've noticed is that if you look at the way that companies sell, the way people prepare, sales reps prepare to sell, the way they conduct themselves, what they do when the pressure's on and they're near the end of the quarter, they're not hitting their targets. You look at what they actually do. What you find is that commercial world people sell the same way that Scott described the developing world people selling, which is a view of selling that selling is fundamentally trying to persuade people to buy something, especially if they don't want or need it. You know, the old saying, he well, even if they sell, do. Yeah, you could sell ice to Eskimos. It's like that's supposed to be a good thing. <laughs> and, you know, this view of selling that it's fundamentally about convincing people to buy, that is one of the reasons that things aren't working. And this is why we've developed decision intelligent selling that what dq selling is about is not trying to convince the customer to buy it is leading the customer to improve their decision intelligence their dq so that they can make the best possible decision for their business and if as a salesperson if you can do that and refuse to maneuver persuade, cajole, and instead focus on helping your client really make the best possible decision by raising what we call their DQ, their decision intelligence. Even if that client doesn't buy from you today, they're going to be back tomorrow and they're going to be back with a few friends. And so to shift selling, you first need to have a different frame of mind about it. And then the second thing is you need to know how to transform yourself and as a sales leader, transform your people in order to sell that way instead of the old habitual ways to 
go about this that we're all locked into. Yeah, and I, w- I want to dig into to both of those, but I was I was sort of thinking more broadly in terms of what has to change. Is you know one of the things that that in this Deming quote, I've been reading this book up upstream by uh, Heath, and um, and it's just like okay, yeah, are we are we not approaching even how we analyze what the problem is from the right perspective? Because yeah, a lot of data exists that says that perhaps one of the most uh, important way you can try to affect seller individual seller performance is through more effective coaching and and yet we invest no money at all virtually in trying to train people how to coach. You know, even mm-hmm. with the methodology you lay out with your race methodology is is somebody still needs to coach that, right? Um, yeah. And so I think you know, I was thinking the other day as I was having this conversation with someone, I was like. Well, maybe we've got it all backwards. Yeah, you know, maybe what we need to do, and I'm just by way of background, I'm a huge soccer fan, and so you know, Liverpool fan, and so on. I <laughs> love yeah. Premier League soccer, and and but you look at the way they've structured how they manage and coach those teams, and it's not just soccer, but prof- professional sports in general. Is they have these roster very specialized coaches with you know specific knowledge about performance improvement, mindset improvements, you know, nutrition, health. Uh, you know, even the point of Liverpool's got a, a coach just for throw-ins, right? Mm-hmm. Is we don't do anything analogous to that in in sales. You know, we still assume that the VP of sales and his small cadre of team are experts on all this stuff, mm. which they're not. Nope, they're not. And that's one of the big mistakes companies make is trying to hire that expertise instead of learn how to develop it and then train their people in it. Mm-hmm. But do we have to like change the structure of how we manage sales? I mean, I look on the sales side and I said, you know, we've just talked about we've made some pretty radical transitions and that are sweeping through sales and with the specialized sales roles. Yet we still fundamentally manage sales the way we did 120 years ago. You know, we still imbue this, you know, these mythical managers, you know, thinking that, you know, hey, they are the end all be all of knowledge about sales and they feel oftentimes, you know, VPs, and maybe you've seen this in your business. I certainly did in mine when I was doing more consulting. Was last thing in the world a VP would do is raise their hand and say they needed help because that was a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good point. I, you know, the real job of sales management is to do exactly what you're describing, which is first of all to design a selling system that raises the DQ of their clients instead of just tries to persuade them to buy. And then secondly, they need to know how to literally transform their people, not just how to coach them in general, but how to help them Mm -hmm. shift. Uh, You mentioned the form transformative formula we use, R equals A plus C plus E. Um, which means that if you're going to really transform somebody, you've got to go after three things, their attitude, their competence, and the way they execute. And you've got to do it in a holistic fashion. And it starts with transforming and giving people the ability to literally recognize their mindset and shift it, not wait for it to shift, but shift it themselves. That is part of the magic sauce. Right. And if you, as a sales manager, you can learn to do that, 
you are going to be able to build people in a way that you never could before. But my point is, why should a sales manager be the person to do that? Why shouldn't there be a coach that's a mind, we'll call it a mindset coach or a transformation coach mm-hmm. on staff? And that's, that's all they do. Mm-hmm. Let, well, the manager, let the manager manage, you know, the, the developing the, the capacity of the organization and, you know, hiring and putting the right process in place. Mm-hmm. But when we develop individuals, why don't we imitate what professional sports are doing, which is a performance activity, just like sales is a performance-based activity. Mm-hmm. Why should that be a sales manager response? Why shouldn't that just be, that's a staff position. That's, this is a person, this is what they do. They coach, you know, this aspect you know, say of the the attitude that you talked about, mm-hmm. they're the attitude coach. Um, part of its function of numbers. You got one coach, and all these people out there whose attitude is slipping and sliding all over the place. Especially when they're on the job, and therefore the way to really make it sustainable is show the manager how to do that. Well, sure, we but- happen to think that's the manager's job. Because if you really want to build your people's capacity, learn how to help them manage their attitude. Exactly. But my point is, I think it's become so special. The knowledge to really make it happen is so specialized that we shouldn't have the managers do it. There should be, we should staff up these positions. I said using pro teams as sports teams as a comparison. Sure, sure. These specialized roles. And And I just see this, there's a reluctance somewhere, either at the C level or whatever, to say, change their mindset about, you know, we're so archaic in the way we, we try yeah. to manage sales. It's, it's mind-blowing. Well, I think a lot of it has to do, uh, Andy, with, with you know, the, the actual channel structure you have and, you know, what is the product you're selling, et cetera, because, you, you know, it's, you're not always following, you know, certainly not following the same distribution system, mm-hmm. you know, or some companies might might really benefit from having specialists in those areas. You know, you've got geographic concerns, you've got, you know, all these various different things that are going to going to be a matrix of different decisions to make. And maybe you do have several managers who are involved in this or several people that have specialties, whereas another, uh, another product that you're selling or a service you're selling might not require that kind of, of uh, specialization. So uh, yeah, I, I agree with you that, it, you know, in, in the right situations, maybe it does make sense to have uh, that sort of specialty. Can I, can I add a thought to that, Andy? Sure. Absolutely. Um, one of the things we've noticed, because we, we face this with every client that we, that we work with, and we often do find kind of attitude management champions, people who get really good at this within a given company, and they kind of take on that role that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very valuable, and I wouldn't slight it, and I think that is something to learn from professional sports. Yeah, the reason, well, however, to really get managers to be good at it, and in fact, we require our own managers to be masters at doing that, or they can't manage. The yeah. reason is that managers can screw things up faster for a sales team than the management coach can get to them to help fix it. Mm. You know, managers with one email or one one-to-one mm-hmm. conversation or the way they set targets or the way they jerk people around in targets or, or, or they can do more damage sure. in five minutes 
and you, you know, one attitude coach just can't be there to fix it. So we think that what's needed is a transformation in management. Attitude coaches will be helpful with it. But well, I think I, it's time for managers to learn how to manage attitude. Well, okay. I mean, so <laughs> we can take my analogy of the sports teams. You know, if you want to become the manager of a Premier League soccer team, there's what, four different coaching certificates you need to have? A through D or A through E even, something like that? Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to go through yeah, some serious training. You know, I find it interesting, and I've, I've posed this question to other people. I'd be interested in your response to this is, so if we took that $20 billion a year yeah. in training that we spend on sales training in the United States, of which maybe, I'll say generously say, uh, 5% of it is spent on training managers, and I don't think it's that much. I mean, it's, it's I interviewing an author a couple weeks ago, and he said that if, there was a study he quoted that showed that, at least in the U.S., is you know the average age a manager is at when he gets his first leadership, or he or she get their first leadership training? Yeah. Age 42. Wow. 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 So, so what if we took this $20 billion and flipped it on its head and spent you know, 18 of the billion training managers and 2 billion training salespeople? Well, this, this is really interesting. Scott, you want to speak to that about our latest insight about how we're training? Definitely. I mean, uh, you're, you're, you're really speaking my language here. And because, <laughs> because, uh, because as, you know, as sales consultants, you know, we, we go into organizations and they're, you know, we're not there because they're doing well. They're, we're there because they have a problem and they can't fix it for themselves. And so, um, you know, generally speaking, um, we can do all the fixing at the sales rep level and get the systems right and everything. But if management fundamentally is not aligned with that and supporting that and creating the context for that, then we've just wasted our time. We've wasted their money to do oh, that. Yeah. So well, we, you know, number one for us always is to absolutely be sure that when we get in with a client is the number one person we got to get on board is the person who is the who is the leader to make sure that they realize it's their sales transformation and they're leading it. We're supporting in it. We're going to do the hard work, but they've got to lead it. And then secondly, we need to work with the management team to get them right before we can actually begin working with the sales team. You say, because mm-hmm. the managers are the ones who are going to be the, you know, the ones who are going to actually create the framework uh, or, or support the framework and then transform how they're actually working with their people. So I couldn't agree more with you. I think it's a great point you're making. Yeah, and not to belabor it because I just—it's a conversation I'm trying to have more and more in the industry. It's just like, yeah, totally. and it's relating to this Deming's quote, right? It's you know we we get the results we deserve basically by the system we have is yeah, exactly. is yeah. Everybody's like, well, we've got you know our typical Pareto distribution and the sales results are eighty twenty. It's like, yeah, but we set it up that way. It doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> Not every yeah. system falls to an 80-20. We design it that way. To right. a point Roy was making before is you know uneven treatment of sales reps, all these other things that go on. So yeah, we just we need to change the par- that particular paradigm. And I know you guys love talking about paradigms, but um, to move on from that, I want to go back to a point you, Roy you'd made earlier, which I you know so few people talk about. I talk about it. It's nice to see other people talk about. It, is that sales is not about persuasion or convincing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, it's, it's about helping somebody make a good decision. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is the, I think, to your point in the book and what you're talking about, such a fundamental shift in 
attitude or mindset or whatever you want to call it that I think pervades sales is people are fundamentally confused about what their mission is. Hmm. Well, I think you've, you've got it right on the nose, Andy. Um, you know, you've been selling for what, 40 years? Well, if you have to say it publicly, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're talking, we're talking I just, old folks. I, old I, just, I just got outed here, but yeah, go ahead. I'm, hey, Andy, I'm 42 years myself, so I, I get yeah, you. I know. <laughs> uh, I'm, on, I'm on to 50-something, so we're, we're talking among generational equals here. When you've been at it a long time and, you, you know, you've gotten through the early terrible training about, you know, the five, five opening questions and the five <laughs> ways to close and how you tighten the screws. And, you know, we all learned to sell like that. And, you know, and we did it for a long time. And for a long time, the job of sales management has been just trying to keep the pressure on your people to do that. And the problem with it is that nobody really likes to sell like that. No. And if you, when you do run into the few people that do like to sell like that, they're not the people you're going to invite to your next Sunday family barbecue. <laughs> you know, they yeah. just tend to be jerks. And so, the, the, you know, the really good people in selling, after a while, either quit or they carve out a position for themselves so they can sell like they want to sell. Mm. But imagine if a com- when a company just takes that on as a company and says, we are not going to sell like this anymore. We're not going to sell as if it's all about convincing the customer to buy. Once they get that at the top, then all sorts of things begin to change. You know, just one example. Mm -hmm. We're working for a large multinational telecommunications company. And I was sitting down with the guy that was in charge of the whole software system and the training system that took all of their sales reps through what they needed to do before they ever talked to a customer. And there was a whole bunch of computer screens they had to work through. They couldn't jump screens. They had to stay with what they were doing. They had to develop, you know, a risk cost benefit analysis, a risk analysis, at least three value propositions uh, comb through their products and services, pick the five that looked like they could work, develop a pitch for each one, three PowerPoint decks before they even went and talked to anybody. As a first call, you mean before they've that made a an hour, yeah, before they down. make the first call? Yeah. Now you, I'm, you know, you're familiar with that with your background, and that is all because everybody thinks that this is what selling's about showing up and establishing your credibility and your trustworthiness by showing how much you know and what the, the benefits your client can get and pitching them. It's all about pitching. And once you get that that is not a way to sell, but it's about raising the client's DQ, that all gets turned on its head. But we've, we've you know, we're in this phase, though, mm-hmm. in sales, especially in software as a service companies mm-hmm. where you know, it is all about first call, let's set up a demo. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the, the problem is that everybody thinks selling is about pitching, including the client, 
So well, they, yeah. asked, they asked for a demo. They expect you to show up with it. Right, right. It's gotten worse, is my point. Yeah. Is in this, yeah. you know, again, back to the Deming quote is we've created these systems, especially in the SaaS world, where where you know they they function on low win rates and it's all about volume through the funnel, velocity through the funnel. And and there's sort of two problems. Well, there are multiple problems with that, but one is the two point you made earlier is that these systems they've implemented are all about compliance because it's about the process dominates. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we want people who are going to sell according to this process mm-hmm. and we don't give people as much of an opportunity to develop this their individual strengths, right? To become the best version of themselves. Mm-hmm. The way that, that I was given the rope to when I was coming up. Yeah, I was yeah. making 30, 40 cold calls a day. I was out in the field making that many cold calls the first number of years I was selling. Mm-hmm. But I had the freedom to do it within our system to the way that fit my skills. And I wasn't like everybody mm-hmm. else. I was, I, I've told the story numerous times here about yeah, after the first sales training, I, I worked for Burroughs. You guys both remember Burroughs. Sure. sure. Yeah. Had a great sales training program. Sure. And I got back from my first two week sales training class and the recommendation from the instructor was they should fire me. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why? What was based on what? Because I was too analytical. Uh, <laughs> because everybody else in the class was, hey, how you doing, right? You know, sort yeah, of the hey. glad hand. And yeah. that wasn't me from personality standpoint or, or <laughs> inclination at all. Yeah. But I yeah. carved, I've, throughout my entire career, I've carved out a way to sell that, that aligned with and successfully with a, a way that it you know, comported with who I was as an individual. Um, but it seems mm-hmm. like we're sort of getting away from that. And it's harder, it's yeah. even harder for people yeah, to do it. There, there's some good news on the horizon. Um, the good news are the people that Scott has worked with on our behalf in the developing world, the social entrepreneurs who trust the value of a for-profit business and developing the innovation behind it, but who also don't want to do it simply for profit, but want to do it for the public good. And that is now, just recently, you, I'm sure you caught last August, the Business Roundtable, the 180-some top executives in the U.S., and every year they issue mm-hmm. forth stuff about purpose of a business. And in August of last year, their contribution to what the purpose of a business is eliminated short-term profitability from the list. <laughs> and their list, in first place, was the well-being of their clients and then their employees, then their suppliers, then the communities in which they work. And lastly, was not short-term profit, but long-term profit for stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was the first time I'd ever heard corporate anybody, corporate America, corporate Europe, come down and say, what we're doing is not working. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. It's gotten worse instead of better as, <laughs> yeah. as short as, as businesses are chasing short-term profits to satisfy the streets. The companies, the commercial companies we've worked with are just suffering under this. Mm-hmm. And they're losing good people right and left because they don't want to work like this. Yeah. Well, I think it's getting worse, but I think it's like COVID, you know, it's, it's pushing it to a breaking point. Mm-hmm. And I think with that announcement from the business roundtable with the social entrepreneurs we see who are always a few years ahead of corporate, um, I think we're coming to a point where people are saying, look, what we're doing isn't working. 
And if you're going to change it, you got to do two things. The first is you've got to go to the fundamental of what is selling. Mm-hmm. About DQ, not about persuading them to buy. And the second thing is you got to get good at transforming the human being and realize that the reason people take 20 billion worth of sales training a year and don't change is they spend a lot of time on autopilot. They spend a lot of time doing things the way they've done them before, and they don't know how to get out of that rut. And their leaders and the leaders of these companies, uh, you know, Andy, they, they really just, you know, they, they, they may say, look, we got to stop selling this way, but oftentimes they don't know what to change to. You know, it's and, and that's the fear. You know, it's like, yeah. let's keep doing more of the same that we know doesn't really work that well, but we don't really see an alternative to it. You say, if we just change the structure a little bit or change the pitch or. Well, yeah, that's why. I, change I think, the software, you know. Right. That's why I, we were talking earlier about let's make radical changes to this, right? Yeah. It's because well, we're just trying to we're just trying to fix it around the edges and. You know, it's not working. It hasn't worked for a long time. And I, I that's one of the things that I love about um, working with a lot of the younger companies we, we get to work with because they've got younger executives. They're not so set in their ways, et cetera, you know. And uh, and so, you know, they're very open to new new and different ways of going about something. And so, therefore, we've had some great successes with that. And true in the commercial world, too. But oftentimes it takes a very visionary leader uh, and I'm sure you saw that in the book with some of the stories that were in there about people we've worked with, is that kind of visionary leader that says, look, I am tired of it being th- this way and I do want to mm-hmm. change this. And so therefore they, you know, they put in, you know, they, they, they put in place the protection to protect the teams and, and, you know, and shield them from other departments or other leadership that wants them to snap back into doing it the old way, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, I think, I, I think we're in very interesting times. I think COVID is going to play a very big role in really shaking companies up and get them to think differently. You know, certainly the ones that are relying on, on, you know, face-to-face visits with customers in live and in person, uh, you know, that's shaking those folks up quite a bit. It's but, a big uh, hopefully there'll be a big enough change that will get some people to really begin thinking differently about uh, what selling really is. And, you know, it's, it's not just the lip service of, of saying, oh, you know, we want to make sure clients make the very best possible decision, you know, for themselves, their family or their business or whatever. We really mean it. You know, yeah. it, it's, it's saying, you know, and, and, and I tell you, when I learned how to start doing this about 20 years ago, as a, as a professional sales uh, salesperson and sales manager, when I learned how to do this, all of a sudden selling became easy, uh, easier, dramatically easier, yes. and more fun and less stress and all of that. And uh, and it becomes just, simpler. It becomes simpler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's yeah. really the, really the key. Absolutely. All right. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time, and so we'll definitely have to have back and talk about your book because we really haven't touched on the book, and it is a very smartly written book and. I want people to be exposed to it. So we'll make sure I have you back before too long to talk about that. But in the meantime, tell people how they can connect with you and learn more about what you're doing. Great. Yeah. Well, the best way to get a hold of us is at uh, at our our website is www.wrpartnership.com. And uh, you can write an email to contact at or info at wrpartnership.com. And we'll be happy to have a chat with you. Perfect. And the... um the book you're mentioning will be out in the fall, and between now and then, if they go to the website, there's a little e-booklet we've just written 
um, about part of how to make an attitude shift happen in the face of the COVID pandemic. And that's available now. And it's actually, you can get it for a you know, just a couple of bucks on Amazon, or you can get it for free by going to the website and getting a link to a distributor called Book Funnel. It's something okay. we put together in the last few weeks just to help people through the pandemic. Perfect. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much. And I said, I look forward to talking again shortly. Thanks, Andy. Look forward to it. Thanks so much. Great to meet you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm, as always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. I want to thank my guests, Roy Witten and Scott Roy, for sharing their insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>